0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Welcome to TBC. My name is Dave. I'm the high school pastor here at the church. And I want to turn your attention to one announcement before we get going here. So I have an announcement about junior high, fifth through eighth grade. They're going to have man night next Saturday where they're going to have man food, man games, and man worship. I'm not sure what that means. That sounds like Christian death metal to me. Um, But they're going to have some man worship, which is worship, not worship of men, but worship by men. And uh, so if you want to be a part of that with your uh, son or grandson who's in fifth or eighth grade, you can email Tim Cartwright there at the below email address um, for this coming Saturday. Before we we get going here, uh, I want to ask you to pray with me because... Uh, Gary and Bev had to go out of town yesterday. Their, uh, their niece, who was 16 years old, um, passed away suddenly in Baton Rouge. And many of you know Kristen Kitchen, who used to go here. This is her sister, her little sister. And so um, Gary said, this is not a suicide. This is that they're doing autopsies autopsy. It's something else completely. Um, but I want you to pray. Just join me in pr- as we pray for them as they've gone to be with their family, as they mourn with their family. Let's go ahead and pray together as a church. God, we're just mourning right alongside Gary and Bev and their family. We pray for a peace, for comfort. We pray that as they go alongside their family, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and, and great discernment, and as they point people to the gospel, people that may not even know you, Father, we pray that uh, you'd be at work in the midst of this tragedy, Father. We pray that you'd give Gary the words to say, give Bev the words to say, and give them the ability to mourn with their family right alongside them, Father. We pray as a church that they would feel the support of this body behind them as they go uh, to be with their loved ones, Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm not quite sure how to transition from that except just to say turn to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, We're going to start in a moment in verse uh, 12, Galatians 4.12. A couple of weeks ago, I was in my office, and one of our secretaries came in and handed me a name and a number and said, hey, can you call this person? This person called the office. They want to talk to someone about Jesus, and that almost never happened, so I called the number back immediately, and and as I talked to this person, it became very apparent very quickly that this person didn't just have questions. This person had an agenda. And their first question was, how do you think someone becomes a Christian? I began to explain how I think someone comes to Christ. You put your faith and trust in Christ, finished work on the cross for your sins, and, and through belief and faith is how we're saved. And he said, well, hey, what, what about baptism? And I said, well, I think that's an act of obedience after you're saved. It doesn't precede salvation, but it's after you're a Christian. And he began throwing out passages and saying how I was wrong and we as a church are wrong. And I said, hey, wait, hang on, are, are, you, are you plugged into a church somewhere? And he said, actually, I'm a pastor in Waco. And I thought, oh no, this guy's leading people into this kind of thinking and theology. And so we went round and round and round for a few more minutes to no avail. And then suddenly the phone just cut out. And I thought, miracle, right? And and then the guy calls back. And I'm thinking, oh, should I answer this phone? Uh, What would Jesus do, right? And by show of hands, who would pick up that phone call? Raise your hand. Man, you guys are mean. Look at you. So I answer the phone, because I'm nicer than you are, and and I answer the phone, and we go round two, and we're just going at it round and round, and we're being nice, but we're just, I'm trying to talk to this guy. And this guy is just going in circle. I I said, finally, I said, hey, listen. Are you also someone that teaches that you can have perfect sanctification? Meaning, you achieve a state of sinlessness in this life. He said, yeah, actually, I do believe that. You know, good trees produce good fruit. And I said, okay, well, we've kind of hit a wall here in our conversation. I said, I I can't convince you. You can't convince me. You're not going to convince me otherwise. And I ended the conversation with I said, hey, listen, please stop teaching your people a false gospel. I said, thank you for being a great sermon illustration. And and I, out of love, in the name of Jesus, hung up the phone. And I know you hear that extreme example and you think, well, that's an extreme case. Like, I would never fall for that. But I want to warn us this morning, this is what Galatians is about. It's about works righteousness. And there are still people out there that teach that. And I'll caution you this morning that it's not just Blatant, obvious, works, righteousness we fall prey to. But there is a subtle way in which you and I can fall prey to works, righteousness. I want to show you this morning how this plays out in our lives. So if you want to summarize what Paul's been talking about, he's been addressing the false teachers in Galatia, and their formula goes like this, faith plus works equals salvation. Paul's picture of salvation is different. Paul would say, no, faith leads to salvation, which then leads to works, acts of obedience. So they have gotten it reversed. And I know many people, uh, some pastors say things like, you know, we don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we are saved. So we would say good works are not a cause of salvation. They are an effect of salvation. And again, this might seem extreme, the story I described might seem extreme to you, but you and I fall into a works-based righteousness all the time in more subtle ways in our own lives. And one of the statements I want to define or frame our discussion this morning is this statement. And it goes like this, many Christians believe in salvation by faith, but live out a salvation by works. And so the question I want to get to this morning as we go through Galatians 4 is the question, how should the gospel affect our lives? When you really boil down the gospel, how does it imprint, how does it affect things in your Christian life? And, you know, I think many of us say things like, you know, we're saved by grace. We say that. But in reality, we think we grow by works. We say we're saved by grace, but we think that we actually grow by effort and by works. And so my goal today is to show you that you are saved by grace, but your Christian growth has to be rooted in grace. Your sanctification has to grow out of grace as well, just like your justification did. So I want to show you today how this plays out from Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in Galatians 4, looking at verses 12 through 20. I'll read this straight through. Starting in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. make much of them it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when i am present with you my little children for whom i am again in the anguish of childbirth until christ is formed in you i wish i could be present with you now and change my tone for i am perplexed about you so we know that in this part of the of galatians paul has changed his tone this is now the most pastoral section in galatians if you look Back in Galatians chapter 3, flip over there very quickly, he starts off chapter 3 with, you foolish Galatians, and then you get to chapter 4, and now he's being a little more pastoral, a little less edgy. I know if you're a parent, you can relate to this. There's been times you've been at the store with your kid, and your kid's acting up, and you grab them by the arm, and you're like shaking your finger in their face, and you're yelling at your kid, Then a few minutes later, you're feeling kind of remorseful. And you get down and you're on your knees and you look at him in the eyes saying, hey, listen, listen, daddy loves you. Daddy cares for you. And so this is kind of what Paul is doing. He has gone from being confrontational and kind of edgy to now he's being pastoral. And look, let me entreat you. He's changed his tone in this section of Galatians. Like a parent who goes off on their kid, he has now pulled them in close and said, listen, look at me. I'm entreating you as the Galatians And so in verse 12, he says a statement. He says, For I have become as you are. What Paul's saying is that when he was with the Galatians, he says, When I came to you, the Gentiles, I lived like a Gentile. It means I ate with you, I drank with you, I did what you did as long as I didn't cross over into sin. And he didn't live under the Mosaic law when he was with them because he wanted to be like them so he could reach them. And we see this pattern in Paul's life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, he says, To the Jew I became a Jew, so I can what? Win the Jews. And I think we learn an important point here. When the gospel's at work, we adapt the method, but never the gospel message. When you and I are changed by the gospel, we adapt, we flex, so we can reach people. I texted Stephen Chung last night, and I said, Hey, can you tell me some ways in which... I bet ministry is a little bit different in New York City versus Temple, Texas, right? And he texted back. He said, let me give you some ways in which it's different in New York City. He said, first of all, in New York City, many people don't even believe there is a God. And they surely don't believe this is an authoritative book. So we have to start from the place of, is there even a God? And how can you trust that this is truth? Now, you'll have some of that here in the, where we live but I think it may be less prevalent. But here people might believe, you know, yeah, I believe, I believe in some sense of God out there, or I believe that there's some, there's some truth in here. But Stephen's got a different starting point in New York City. And so he's adapting some methods so that he can reach the people in the city. I visited the UAE um, last November with some pastors here on staff. And if you go to the UAE or any Muslim country, we met with some pastors there uh, some Christian pastors there in a Muslim country. And if you go to a Muslim country to plant a church, guess what day you're having church? It's going to be Friday. Because in a Muslim country, their holy day, or their day of the week that we, they, they took off, is on Friday. So Friday is their Sunday. So if you're trying to plant a church in a Muslim country, guess what day church is going to be? It's going to be on Friday. Because that's what their culture, that's the day that you have off during the week. That's their Sunday. So you adapt your methods to reach people, but you never change the gospel message. We don't change the gospel. We also don't cross over into sin in order to reach people. You know, some people think they've got to change the gospel. We've got to shave the, the harsh edges of the gospel off so we can reach the culture. You never, you never change the gospel, the meaning of the cross, the definition of sin, the need for repentance and confession. You never change those things to reach People, but we definitely need to change methods sometimes in order to reach people around us. This is what Paul would do. Other people think, you know, well, if you're changing the methods, well, that's like changing the message. That's another mistake that we make in the church. We sort of put the method up there with the message as if they're equal. And this kind of person is legalistic and rigid and inflexible. And this is not the kind of person Paul was. Paul was a person who would go into a people and he would flex and change so he could reach them. But he would never change his message, only his methods. Now I've given you some sort of churchy examples. I want to give you one from just regular life. A few years back, I was at Starbucks and I was waiting in line. and There was a guy in line there behind me who I think used to go to this church. And there was this lady in front of us who had just tattoos all over her body. And this guy next to me, he said, he said, hey, can, look at this lady. Can, can you, do you believe this? He said, do you think, you think Christ is pleased with that? And at first I just went, I go, bro, I go, you're talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> you're talking to the wrong guy here. And at first I thought, I'm not sure if I should be offended that how you're talking about this lady, or more offended by whether you thought I would agree with you. And I also thought, if she ever comes into our church, I hope you're not the first person that she sees. But there are people that just have this legalistic, rigid way of viewing the world, and I think what we have to learn from this passage is that Paul would go into a place and he would He would look at people, he would, in a sense, become like them as long as he's not crossing over into sin, and he would flex and change in order to reach them. And this kind of legalistic mindset says, I want people to look like me, dress like me, before they can become a part of us. And this is legalism in the church. Now, you might hear all this, and you might think, well, Dave, what's the big deal? I mean, the guy just doesn't like tattoos. What's that got to do with the gospel? It's got everything to do with the gospel. Because when the gospel is at work in a place, we don't turn minor things into major things. We don't turn small things into big things. So when Jesus was walking on the earth, he would enter into people's lives, much in the way that Paul would enter into people's lives. And they would adapt, flex, and change in order to reach the people. We see here Paul believes the gospel is primary, the method is secondary. If you look at verse 13, it says, Paul says that he only stopped in Galatia because he was ill. Paul had an illness, so he stopped in Galatia for either treatment or just to recover. And I think we see here that when the gospel's at work, we see suffering as a gospel opportunity. If you look through Scripture, throughout history, God has used suffering to advance the gospel throughout history. All the stories of the gospels are full of it. The life of Paul is full of that truth. When Paul is in jail, what is he doing? He's writing letters to the church. He's preaching to guards. Listen, if I'm I'm in jail, I'd have one mission, getting out. When Paul's in jail, he has one mission, and it's to get the gospel out. And so when the gospel's at work in our life, our response to suffering is just different because we know that God doesn't owe us anything. We don't see in the life of Paul, him shaking his fist at God. God, why have you forced this stop in Galatia? No, he uses an opportunity. This is a chance to speak the gospel to the Galatians. And so he shares the gospel there in Galatia. I know if you turn on the TV, you'll see lots of We talk at TBC often about the prosperity gospel. You you turn on the TV and people are preaching a prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it, we call it, um, you know, give us money and we'll send you this in the mail or give us money and God will bless you. We call it prosperity gospel for a reason. And many in the room would say, well, I don't really believe all that. I don't believe in a prosperity gospel. But I think you and I can easily fall prey to a more subtle prosperity gospel. And it may not be the Mercedes Benz. But it sure looks like not getting cancer. Listen, I would struggle if I got sick. Thinking I'm owed good health. Thinking I'm entitled to health. Thinking I'm entitled to a suffering free life because I'm following Jesus and I'm doing ministry. And so I think Paul understood the reality that suffering... Didn't lead to a Christian timeout. It just led to a different audience, and I think we see this in life. I've seen this with Gary. I mean, Gary's been he's been suffering well as he has uh, has has been sick in the past uh, couple of years. And I think for Gary, someone like Gary, he he understands that look, this is not time for a timeout. This is just a different audience. I'm going to share Christ wherever I go, whether it's in treatment rooms or treatment centers or talking to people at the church. They're struggling. It's led to a different audience. This is what happened to Paul. Look down at verse uh, 15 now with me, where Paul says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul's saying, what's happened to our relationship? When I was first with you, I cared for you. You cared about me. We cared for each other. What's happened to our our friendship, our relationship? Now, we know from Scripture that Paul had some eye issues. He says, many of you would have gouged out your eyes for me. And as a parallel, I tried to think of someone that we all know who could use an extra eye. But I really couldn't think of anybody. Anybody? But no, seriously, we all love Gary very much. But how many of you, if the eye transplant would work, how many of you would just, you love Gary so much, you would just want to pop out one of your eyes and give it to Gary? Any hands? All right, we don't want to start a donor list this morning. But most of you, you love Gary, but you probably wouldn't go that far. But Paul sensed from these people that if... He had some visual problems. He he sensed that they love me so much that many of you would have, if it would have worked, you would have given me your eyes. You would have gouged out your own eyes so I could see clearly. And this is the kind of relationship that they used to have, Paul and the Galatians. And now he's saying, he's expressing how burdened he is. He he is saying the tone of their relationship has changed. And I think some of you in the room, you've experienced this. You've experienced a friendship where the tone of the relationship just changed for whatever reason. The temperature changed. And Paul is sensing that from the Galatians that something's just changed. Something's not right between me and you. And I think we see an important truth here. Look at uh, verse 16 here. Paul raises a question in verse 16. He says, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And I think we see here that when the gospel's at work in someone's life. We can speak truth without fear, and Paul's not afraid to speak the truth. Now, I don't mean someone. There are people out there who just love speaking the truth. We all know those kind of people, right? Um, if you don't, you might be that person. I don't know, but we we know people that love speaking the truth. But Paul, when Paul knows when it comes down to it, he has to speak the truth because he cares for these people, and I think this is true of friendship, it's true of people in the body of Christ, it's true of pastors, it's true of people out in the congregation, that when you, the gospel is at work in your life, you can speak the truth without fear or repercussions because you know where where your identity lies. On the flip side of this, when the gospel is at work, you can hear truth without despair. You can hear truth and not be crushed by it. Now, I know in this passage, this is more of a doctrinal issue, but this also applies to personal relationships. How do you respond when someone speaks truth to you? If you're like me, I've got an allergy to the truth. If someone tells me the truth, I start breaking out in the sweat and start having hives and stuff. It's it's a reaction. But when the gospel's at work, you can... Hear the truth and not be crushed by it. Now I want to tell you today, uh, by this next statement, I'm not trying to make a political statement, I'm trying to make a gospel statement. But a guy named Russell Moore, who is a a Southern Baptist, a, a thinker, writer, speaker, blogger, he's been, let's just say, somewhat critical lately of Donald Trump. Now I'm not sure why, maybe you can Google it up and find out why, but um, he's been kind of critical of Donald Trump, and and so Trump tweeted, I'm sure late one night, that Moore was a nasty guy with no heart. He said, Russell Moore is a nasty guy with no heart. Just tweeted that out there. And the next day, Moore is on Anderson Cooper Live, and of course, you know the media, they're always trying to say, hey, well, this guy said this about you, what do you think about that? So... They ask him, Russell Moore, like, what do you think about Trump's tweet? And this is Russell Moore's response. He says this. Well, I thought it was great. It's one of the few things I can agree with Donald Trump on. I am a nasty guy with no heart. We sing worse things about ourselves in our hymns on Sunday mornings. We say we are a wretch in need of God's grace. So I agree with that. That's the reason I need forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. And you can just see the look. on it. Anson Cooper's like... What? (laughs) What kind of a response is that? But do you see how freeing it is when someone says something nasty or even the truth about you? That you're not, the gospel frees you not to be crushed by it. Say, yeah, I am. I am that way. In fact, you know what? I'm not just that way. I'm worse. Let me tell you how, how worse I am than what you think I am. Can you imagine if you're relationships were characterized by the gospel in that sense, where when someone confronts you, husbands, wives, when when they say, hey, why are you doing, why are you like this? And you're like, hey, you know what, you're, you don't know the half of it. I'm way worse than you think I am. I mean, parents and children, imagine that if that was how your kids responded. You confront your kids and your kids are like, oh, mom, dad, that's, let me tell you what else I did, right? I mean, seriously, this would transform your relationships, wouldn't it? When the gospel's at work, you can hear truth and not be crushed by it. And so I think, you know, Paul is reminding them, he's saying, you know, speaking the truth to you does not make me an enemy, but it makes me a friend. If I speak truth, that makes me a friend, not an enemy. Look down at verse 17. Paul says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. What Paul is saying in verses 17 and 18, he's He's referring to the false teachers. He is saying these false teachers want to flatter you so that you'll flatter them. These false teachers want a fan club. These false teachers want to create a following. And I want to just talk to you honestly for a minute. I speak as a pastor here, and it's very tempting for pastors and the people to have a codependent relationship where... I want to flatter, so I'll get flattered. And Paul is speaking against us. And I think if Paul is referring to Christ being formed in them, I think so often we as leaders want to form ourselves in people and not Christ. We as leaders want to form ourselves and create a fan club, create a following. And I think we learn a truth here that when the gospel is at work, we want people more excited about the gospel than about the leaders. We want people more excited about the gospel than they are about the leaders. And this is so tempting in ministry. And Paul is speaking out against this with these Galatians, these false teachers. A good leader is always pointing beyond him or herself. A good leader deflects praise. A good leader says, no, the, the point isn't me. The point isn't me on this stage, the point is me pointing you to the gospel, me pointing you to the cross, me pointing you to Jesus. And Paul is cautioning these Galatian people against what these false teachers are doing. And then in verse 19, we see something very interesting because Paul uses a strange image to describe himself, the image of childbirth. He says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. So Paul compares himself to someone in labor. He says, "I'm in such pain and agony over you if if I could just think of an analogy to describe how difficult this is, childbirth." Now, most scholars agree that Paul wasn't married, and I think this verse confirms it because his wife would have never let that verse fly, right? Can you imagine that? Like, hey, honey, what do you think about this verse? No, you need to change that. <laughs> change that. That's not a good analogy. And listen, if you're, if you're a guy in the room here and you're trying to communicate that something is difficult or hard, use a different analogy, right? Pick a different analogy. Anyone except childbirth, you have no idea what that's like. I mean, you'd never come in from yard work like all sweaty and gross and you had a hard day working in the yard and say, honey, that was a really difficult experience out there in the yard. It was kind of like childbirth. (laughs) You would never say that, would you? But I think Paul uses the picture for a very specific reason, because he has already had experience with the Galatians, and in a sense, it sounds crass, but in a sense, he's already given birth to them one time as spiritual children and now it is like they have crawled back into the womb. And he's saying, now I'm in anguish again, trying to birth you out because you are deceived. So it's not just being crass. Like, it's a very specific analogy he's trying to uh, paint for us here. But I think he's also trying to paint a picture that when the gospel is at work, we understand that discipleship can be painful. Discipleship can be Painful. I was talking to a friend this past week, and we have a mutual friend who lives uh, away from here now, but this girl used to be really involved in our church a long time ago. She was leading things. She was a part of leadership. She was a, a believer. She was fully engaged here at TPC. And now she's off of college, and she's just rejected the whole thing. And it's just painful to watch. It's painful and sad to watch. And I can agree with this, that discipleship is painful, And I know most of the time when we think of someone straying off, we think of open rebellion. We think of someone who's gone off the deep end into sin. And here's what's strange. In Galatians, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about someone straying off into license and sinful lifestyle. He's talking about someone straying off into legalism. And it's odd because if you look at Paul... He would chase down the open rebellion, someone falling off the deep end into sin, someone going off like the Corinthians were going off on sin. But he also writes a letter to the Galatians, and he cares deeply about somebody straying off into legalism. And I think we can say here, even though this is not obvious an open rebellion, I think the legalists commits a quiet rebellion against the gospel. The legalist says, you know, I don't need Jesus. I don't need the cross. I don't need grace. I don't need the body of Christ. They may not say it out loud, but there's, they're living in such a way where these things are true. And at a heart level, these things are taking place. There's this pride. There's this arrogant self-righteousness. And I think in the church, Galatians serves as a reminder that in the church, we've got to be just as passionate about addressing legalism as we are license. As pastors, as leaders, we have to be just as passionate about confronting and dealing with legalism just like Paul did and not just chasing after the person that's in open rebellion. Because both are a kind of rebellion. One is obvious and one is a rebellion of the heart. We also see in verse 20, look at verse 20 again. Paul says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Paul knows that if he were right in front of them that he would change his tone. He's getting pastoral here. And you and I know this to be true. If you... If someone is right in front of you, we tend to be softer. If someone is distant, we tend to be harsher. And if you don't know that's true, just get a Facebook and Twitter. You'll see that real quickly. You'll see what I'm talking about. I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I love it because you see things about people you didn't know before. But I hate it because you see things about people you didn't know before. So I have a love-hate relationship with it, but you know it's true that whenever you're in front of someone, we tend to be softer. Whenever you're distant, we tend to be harsher with someone. And this is what Paul's pointing out here. He's saying, look, I know I'm being harsh with you, but I wish I could be there in person and change my tone with you. He says, I want to wring your neck from a distance, but if if I was up close, I would hug your neck. He's being pastoral with these people, these Galatians. And we see that he has a passion for these people. Now, I want to shift gears here for a minute. And this next section here, I'm going to summarize for you. So we're going to read just one verse, verse 21. And Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And. The Galatians wanted to go back and live under the law. So when Paul says live under the law, he's referring to relying on the law for salvation. He's not referring to just obeying. He's referring to someone who's relying on the law for salvation. So Paul says, if you want to live under the law in that way, let's turn back to the law, the Old Testament, and let's learn from a familiar story that you might know about. So now he goes back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar ishmael and isaac and you know the story abraham and sarah are promised a son by god they didn't get pregnant for a long time and so what do they do they take matters into their own hands sarah suggests hey i've got hagar my maidservant why don't you take her get her pregnant and then she'll he'll be like our son brilliant idea so they do this abraham gets with hagar they have ishmael but now sarah is what She's jealous. I mean, I could have told you that, right? So she's jealous. A few years later, Abraham and Sarah finally have Isaac. And he's the promised one. He's the son that God had promised to him. Now Paul takes this whole story and he uses it as an analogy. He uses it as an analogy because um, here's what he does as he as he takes the picture from, from Galatians uh, four twenty two all the way to thirty one. He used it as a picture of salvation. You see, Abraham had Ishmael because Abraham didn't trust God. He took matters into his own hands. And so Paul's saying if you're relying on the law for salvation, this is like taking matters into your own hands, trying to save yourself. You're like the son of Ishmael. But if you're someone who's relying on Christ alone, Christ's work on the cross, not your own works to save you, well then, This is the work of God. This is the promise of God. You're like the sons of Isaac because Isaac was born out of a promise. Isaac was born out of a miracle in the same way that that her womb was opened miraculously. Our heart was opened miraculously. The work of God, the promise of God. And so if you're allowing God's work to save you, not your own works, You're like the sons of Isaac. And if you wanted to offend someone in that day, you would call them a son of Ishmael. They wouldn't have liked that too much. So Paul's using this brilliant allegory as he talks through the story with the Galatians. And so he's saying to go back under the law would mean that you're a son of slavery, not a son of freedom. And when Paul says, under the law, he means people relying on law for salvation, as I said before, and it's not that obeying the law is wrong, but relying on it for salvation is. You know, my students always joke with me, they always tell me that I always quote Tim Keller at least once every sermon, and it's true, probably true. But I want to show you just quickly, um, this is a section of his book on Galatians, Tim Keller's book on Galatians and he says there are four types of people in the world the first is someone who is law obeying and law relying meaning they're relying on the law to save them but they also obey the law this is the prideful person this is like the pharisees these are legalistic people rigid critical hold themselves to high standard hold everyone else to high standard as well they're touchy overly sensitive Law-obeying, law-relying. The second kind of person is law-disobeying, law-relying. This is a person who, even though they know the law, maybe they grew up in church, they know all the rules, they know what you're supposed to do, but they feel like they're failing at it. And so they're law-disobeying, but they're still law-relying because they think to be a good Christian means that you follow the law, and this is what saves me. This person is law-disobeying, law-relying, this is the shameful person. This kind of person might attend church but not get too involved, thinking that, you know, if people know my story, they don't want to know my story. I've got a tough story. And so they just live in shame. But ironically, their posture toward the law is the same as the Pharisee-type person. They just feel like a failure at it. The third kind of person he describes is someone who's law-disobeying and not law-relying, this is a skeptical person. This is a person who may have a vague spirituality, doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, or maybe they do, they just believe in some vague God out there somewhere, or maybe they don't. Maybe it's about creating your own rules, creating your own laws in life, and following those. But this is a skeptical person. And the the fourth person he mentions is someone who's law-obeying, not law relying. This is the joyful person. This person understands the gospel, and they live out the freedom of the gospel. They obey out of joy, not out of obligation. They obey because their life has been changed by the gospel. They no longer see the the, the need to rely on the law for salvation, but they obey because they want to someone who's law-obeying, not law-relying. And I think before we come to know Christ, everyone has a bent one, two, or three. And for me, it has always been number one. This is my story. And I want to share just for a few minutes a little bit of my own story. I was saved at an early age, and as I share my story, I don't want to... My goal today is not to shame anyone. So if you're sitting here and you've got just what the church might call a tough past, then I don't want to shame you today. My goal, though, is to I need to tell you my own sin for a minute. But I was the number one person on this deal. I at an early age I was saved in a a Christian family. But it wasn't until much later that I understood what grace really was. I mean, I knew it intellectually but I hadn't experienced it yet fully. Experienced it and understood what it meant fully for my life. Until in my teens, God began to change me. So um, I was 17 years old. I was driving somewhere with a friend of mine. He was a friend and he was a mentor of mine. And one day he liked to ask probing questions. He said, hey, Dave, so what are you you looking for in a wife one day? And I'm 17, so what am I going to say? I'm like, man, I don't know. Hot. Because when you're 17, there's one thing on that list, right? So as I began to take the question more seriously, I began to list off some things. And I began to list off some, some characteristics. And I got to the end and I said, you know, I, I think I want to marry someone who's, you know, waited for marriage. You know, I plan to wait for marriage and I want to marry someone who's waited for marriage. And he, he just like slammed on the brakes and he goes, wait, what? He goes, wait a second, what if, what if you meet a girl and maybe she wasn't a Christian, maybe she was a Christian, she just fell into some sin, and but she repented, she came back to Christ. You're saying you wouldn't marry her because of that? And I said, well, I mean, I, I just don't think I would. I mean, I think I would just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And he just looked at me like dumbfounded, and he was like, how can you say that? He said, Dave, you know my story. My story is, is rough. I have a rough past. Like, I it was with a lot of people before I got met, married my wife. And she showed grace to me. Like, how can you say that? And I said, well, that, that, was, that was her choice. I mean, I don't think I would do that. Just very matter of fact. And he just let me have it. I mean, he just ripped into me and said, man, I hope God teaches you, but that, that's just messed up. That's wrong, that attitude. And I was like, well, that's fine. I'm glad you, you feel that way, right? So a few years later, I moved from Virginia down to Texas, I was 19 when I moved, That made that move, and I was living in Arlington at the time, and I met a girl who um, uh, we started dating pretty uh, early on, and, you know, just to um, save you the trouble, this is not my wife, I know that many of you are thinking like, oh, he's going to tell the story, and then she'll be up on stage, and we'll all be crying, you know, and that's not what's going to happen here, all right? I'm just going to let that, you know that right now. Um, but this was a girl I began to date, and she was a godly girl. We wanted to have a godly relationship. And, and we started dating and stuff, and I would go to Baylor to see her, and she'd come to Arlington and back and forth. And as things began to get more serious, one night she sat me down, and she said, you need to tell me about my past. And she told me your past. And she said, I was part of a youth group. And I was living for Jesus on the outside, but I had this boyfriend. And we were involved sexually for two years. And she told me that. I thought, you know, I was 19. I was foolish. I thought this could be the girl, maybe. Who knows? But I thought it could maybe head down that direction. And she told me that one night, and I just felt devastated. I felt so crushed. I felt so disappointed. I felt so just, oh, God, how could you allow this? And... Now, we worked through all that, and, and I felt like um, that God taught me a lot through that. Now, ended up later breaking up, obviously, and God had different uh, plans for us both. But I'm convinced to this day that God used that relationship to teach me grace, to teach me his grace. And I was blessed to live with some guys. One of those guys was, uh, you guys know him, Casey Burke. And Casey and I had lots of conversations during that time in my life, and And one thing that he said I'll never forget, he said, you know, your biggest problem, Dave, isn't just how you view her sin. And getting over the hurdle of, like, how you view her sin, your biggest issue is how you view your own sin. And he was right. Because I didn't take my own sin seriously. I saw my sin as less than her sin. And even the the statement of, you know, I learned to extend her grace. You know, I'm up here, she's down here, and I'm extending grace to her. That whole thing is just arrogant to say because it takes out the idea that I'm in the same position that she's in. And so I think that I was living my life as someone who was... Law-obeying and law-relying. Thinking I'm better than because of what I have or haven't done. And I think we can say when the gospel's at work in your life, we give grace because we have received grace. Father, we are grateful and thankful that grace levels the playing field. Grace, at the foot of the cross, all of us are equal. And we stand separated from you before Christ, before you come into our life and change us. We thank you for the truth that the gospel is not just the entry point into salvation, but it is the way in which we grow and change, and your grace empowers our living It is not just the entry point to a relationship with you. We thank you for that truth. We pray that sinks deep into our hearts and our souls and our minds, Father. And we live from that truth, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.